Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In this week's program, we ask what the implications are for New Zealand sport in the wake of the Australian investigation, which has uncovered widespread doping in sport there. Team New Zealand launches its second catamaran ahead of this year's America's Cup. Football suffers a credibility blow with investigations revealing almost 700 matches around the world may have been subjected to match fixing. Despite their strong Olympic campaign, times are tough bike New Zealand. And we hear how the Breakers try and continue their winning streak as they chase a hat-trick of ANBL titles. The Australian investigation that's uncovered widespread doping is set to have repercussions in this country. The report by Australia's Crime Commission has implicated coaches, sports scientists, doctors and organised criminals. It says some players are being administered with drugs that are not yet approved for human use and it's also identified at least one case of match-fixing. The Chief Executive of Drug Free Sport New Zealand is Graham Steele and he says he'll be asking his Australian counterparts if there are any connections to New Zealand sports or athletes. I need to be careful here about um, scaremongering, but at the same time be realistic that, that we can't just assume that uh, we're not involved. So, uh, yes, I suppose fearful, that's the word I would choose, but um, it's not far wrong. In this case, it appears from what we've been told so far, it's not just a matter of organised crime dealing directly with, with the players in Australia, but the suggestion is, isn't it, that we're talking about you know, trainers and support staff and coaches being involved? It, it would seem that they are the more culpable in this in that um, the players tend to follow the lead and it may well be that um, athletes are being doped without really understanding what's going on around them. Uh, what can you tell us about the range of, of uh, drugs that are involved here? The kinds of drugs that, that are most heavily implicated are what are referred to as peptide hormones. So they are the kind of drugs that will stimulate the body to produce its own muscle building effect. And there's been this suggestion that in some instances they're drugs that haven't even been approved for human use. Well that's right and, and, and again WADA has been aware of this um, uh, kind of approach for some time to the extent that they have included in the prohibited list provision for um, penalties against people using drugs which, which are not specified, which are unknown but which are not approved for medical use. Would Drug Free Sport New Zealand have the resources to mount uh, some sort of an investigation of its own? Uh, probably not of the scale that was done in Australia. So the, the first thing we would need to do is determine uh, what are the clues that exist here that w would um, suggest that such an investigation is necessary. And, and the environment here is not identical to Australia. What do you mean by that? The range of um, professional sports people in Australia, of course, is much broader. There are much more of them. And therefore, it is easier for people who uh, may not be prepared to behave ethically to, to infiltrate that. I mean, we're a relatively small professional sporting 
country, and most of the people know each other, the doctors, the trainers, and so on. And it's more difficult for people to come in from the outside and, and, and adopt this kind of practice. And generally, how would you describe the, the, the major sports in New Zealand in terms of their, of their own uh, policing of, of uh, doping within their sports or the possibility of doping within their sports? Well, uh, of course, it's our job to, to provide that policing arm, if, if you like, and, and we test heavily uh, in those sports, and, and I guess most particularly rugby, that, that would be um, between a quarter and a third of all our testing is in, is in rugby union. The nature of the doctors that they uh, employ and the trainers they employ are um, pretty heavily scrutinised and, and we'd be pretty confident that they are getting the right people in those positions. One imagines a lot of Australians, you know, sports-crazy Australians will be really rocked by this. Uh, it really strikes at the heart of the fair play notion. Uh, what was your personal response to hearing this news? Oh, well, the same. I mean, we, we respect uh, the Australians and Australian athletes and, and predominantly, I guess, regard them as being more like us than most uh, in, in that the, the they do have. And I think New Zealanders uh, have uh, an inherent sense of fair play and sportsmanship and so on, and that, that's part of the way we're brought up. It's part of the environment that we have as we come through the clubs and the, the parents and the volunteers, all those kinds of things. And sometimes where these things go awry is that you divorce sport from, from its roots and, and all, those, all those volunteers would, would be just mortified. That's Drug Free Sport New Zealand's Chief Executive Graham Steele talking to Morning Report's Simon Mercer. Team New Zealand has launched its second America's Cup catamaran, noting what appears to be two different design paths among the four contenders. The second winged catamaran is an evolution of the first, with the basic design also having been sold to Italy's Luna Rossa. Our America's Cup reporter Todd Nile went to the launch and spoke to the team's managing director Grant Dalton about the difference between the team's two boats. There's already changes to it, or not really changes, but, but alterations that we're planning that are already started. So it's such an evolving class and we don't have the answers. Uh, we've just got a version of an answer that we've just got to keep moving. Um, this is definitely a step on from the last boat. The, to your eye, the changes probably look reasonably subtle, but some of them are quite dramatic. Uh, even in the wing, which is, looks the same, there's um, probably another 10,000 hours gone into that wing just since it came out of, the, out of, out of boat one. So we've just got to keep... The, the key is to just try and keep on moving and, and hopefully avoid a um, catastrophe along the way. I mean, we put the wing up this morning in 25 knots. So, you know, that was marginal all on its own. Uh, we're going to give the guys a bit of a break over... Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, because they have just, I know it's, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but they have just given. It's unbelievable how hard they've worked. And um, I don't know how many hours there are in a week, but they've done most of them in this place. Yeah. Do, you know, do you know or hope what the difference is between this boat and its predecessor? Yeah, we absolutely know the differences, and we, and we I think our um, computer modelling tells us exactly what the speed differences are too. And we look at Oracle and, and Artemis, and they're pretty much in a different spot. Well, certainly the boats they got now are in a different spot. The interesting thing will be whether they come more towards us with their next boats or we end up going a bit towards them. Certainly Artemis with their new wing that's just gone in is, is really pretty similar to this. So they've come a long way towards us with their wing, um, and we'll there, wait, wait and see a, with their hull. Is there a simple way to describe the difference? Yeah, there is. It's, it's basically the, the relationship of the front, I mean, the, the wing's in two elements, if you like, a front element and a back element, and there's a ratio. 
sort of 50-50 if you like you can have 50 in the front 50 in the back and it's all about going up win and uh, they, they had a very little back and a very big front now they've got a more even distribution like we have um, and probably that means their wing will be on weight too so that's one thing that's come towards us some comments from um, Russell Coots in the paper this or in the, in the webs this morning would indicate they may be going further away from us and he uh, made the point that he didn't expect to meet us in the final so um, we'll wait and see that, that might mean they're going more towards a non-falling boat with Artemis How much room do you think you'll have to manoeuvre once you Put the boat in the water, the, get racing. This, make the boat and change the boat? Yes, not yep. much. And not not because you won't want to, but the lead times are so huge. Yep. Just to build a new centreboard takes about three months if you if you don't have a mould and you've got to start again. So, and we saw that when, when, our, when Oracle broke their board, they just were crippled and then they flipped the boat. But it just everything takes so long that you just can't react. And, I, and we've seen the hulls of Oracle, the new hulls, unless they're elaborate dummies, which is possible. Uh, and uh, they're very similar to their old hulls. So that means one of two things. One, they're very happy with them. Or two, they haven't got time to change them. It might be a com- bit of a combination of both. What, what was Russell Coates alluding to when he said he didn't think he'd beat you in the final? I've no idea. It was just a straight you know, black and white comment. So he obviously likes Artemis, and who am I to not have huge respect for his comment? We couldn't really change it even if we wanted to. It's too late. Uh, remain incredibly nervous because we don't know. We just don't know. We, we, we know what we know, but we don't know what they know. So, and they don't know what we know either. So I guess we, no one really knows. So given the new class and um, the different approaches by the syndicates, is it going to be a bit of a roll of the dice as to who's got the best, the best boat on the, come the start? If, I don't know about a roll of the dice. It's more a who's got who's, who's backroom guys actually have got it, you know, have understood it, who, who's mastered the technologies, whose numbers are best. Um, I think that really all we can hope for now is that we're given a fair shot at this and that, that if Oracle wake up one morning and sense they got a problem, that they don't start screwing with the rules or trying to screw with the rules. Um, you know, San Francisco is a venue which is very dependent on the time of the day for its wind strength. So um, we're set up for a wind strength as published and as agreed, or sorry, a, a time of day, not a wind strength. And we just hope that um, that's, that, that remains the case. San Francisco is pretty, is reasonably predictable in terms of it comes under the bridge at a certain time when the desert's hot and it blows, and it builds through the afternoon. So there's, there's just probabilities, and, and the tide has a big influence. And we know what the tides will be through the Louis Vuitton, you know, you, can, you know that five years before it. Yeah. Uh, and so we're set up around what we think is the optimum place to be given probability. You won't get it right all the time because weather is weather. But you know, we just hope we, that there's no play made to change it. So what's the focus now? Get it in the water, get sailing, and start looking at the numbers. And uh, and we like we'd like to do some um, race testing, race racing against um, Prada. Who, who, who yeah, I, I have stepped up a lot since we sailed against them in December because we watched them. And uh, they'll be a good uh, foil for us to actually race in the next couple of months. What happens to Boat 1 now? I'd like to sell it because I need more money, but I can't do that. <laughs> so we'll, we'll try and get Boat 1 eventually into a position as close to being ready to sail as we can. But we aren't afford to put it. This, some of this is, uh, this boat's got cannibalised parts winches, some of the beams, not all the beams, but some of the beams. And so, because we just don't have the finance, 
finance to actually take boat one ready to go. Uh, and as we, if I can trickle in any more money, it will go all into to try and get boat one ready to... Because we're the... I mean, probably Artemis' first boat won't measure. We think it's probably too heavy, so they haven't got two boats that they could race. Prada doesn't. Oracle will, whether their first boat's any good or not is another issue. But they've still got a boat they could get around in if you were out. And um, if we had a catastrophic issue, if we, make, if we make it through to the cup, that would be not good with all the money and all the hope and dreams and suddenly we can't get our second boat on the water in time because there's a certain specification under the protocol of how, much, how quickly you've got to turn your boat around. So that's, for me now, kind of a mission to try and get enough money to actually get boat one into commission or get ready to commission. That's Team New Zealand's Grant Dalton. And the Louis Vuitton Cup for Challenger starts on July the 4th with the winner sailing against Oracle in the America's Cup proper from September the 7th. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. European police say they've identified some 680 suspicious football matches, including World and European Cup qualifiers and Champions League games in a global match-fixing scandal spanning 2008 to 2011. Europol says the biggest match-fixing investigation ever has identified at least 425 suspicious referees, players and other officials. Most of the alleged fixed matches in Europe were played in the Turkish, German and Swiss championships. Fourteen people have already been convicted in Germany in connection with the investigation. Last year, the head of an anti-corruption watchdog estimated that $1.5 trillion was gambled on sport each year. Nine to News, Catherine Ryan spoke to the BBC South American football correspondent Tim Vickery about what it all means for the beautiful game. Absolutely massive scale. And one of the uh, Ronald Noble... One of the uh, the major figures in Europol, Europe, Europe's uh, collective police force, is saying that the revenues from this activity are on the scale of a Coca-Cola company. So they, they, we're talking huge sums of money and a huge scale of operation. Um, perhaps 30 countries and maybe more affected by match fixing. So it really is an enormous scandal and one that that, that, uh, seriously threatens the fabric and the integrity of the global game. That is the words that the director of Europol, the European Union's law enforcement agency, Rob Wainwright, has given. This is a big problem for the integrity of football in Europe. No doubt about it. This, I suppose, you could see as a a highly unwelcome sub-product of the extraordinary global popularity of football. And football, in comparison with most other sports, is, is perhaps more fluid and maybe more difficult to, to, to fix. And uh, also with fewer opportunities for kind of spot betting you know, on things other than the, than, than the results. But even so, even taking these, these difficulties uh, into consideration, it's clear that this is an industry on an absolutely massive, massive scale because there are so many, there's so much money betting on, on, uh, on, on these, these activities because people love football so much. Whether they'll continue to love it quite as much after revelations of the scale of the fixing, well, that's another matter. 680 matches across the world, investigators say, were were fixed uh, as part of their investigation. They're not naming specifics at the moment. But this is some of the biggest competitions in world football, qualifiers for the World Cup, for the European Championship. Yeah, although it's usually games that are a little bit out of the public eye. Uh, That's usually uh, easier to do. Um, it it, uh, attracts 
less attention. Although we are hearing that uh, even games in the World Cup are affected. There's certainly one sending off from a World Cup game in South Africa in 2010, which is so bizarre that it's it's clearly, clearly attracting attention. So, uh, And it could well be that as the scale of this illicit industry grows, people are becoming bolder and bolder in terms of the matches that they are prepared to, to fix. Because you can clearly see from the amount of the, the revenue that Europol are talking about, that in comparison with, for example, the narcotics trade, the rewards from max, match fixing are still enormous, but the risks compared with, the, with getting involved with the drug trade are much, much less. So that's a powerful incentive for people to get involved in this illicit activity. The reach is right around the globe, again, as you say, uh, and uh, 380 suspicious matches in Europe and a further 300 in Africa, Asia and Central and South America, where you are. And, and what is the reaction there as, the, as this news begins to break? Um, well, we had a very open scandal in 2005 in Brazil with referees. It was, it was proved and, and legal action was taken that uh, there were a group of referees who were receiving money in order to, uh, to, to fix results. And a number of games in that year's Brazilian championship were replayed. Um, the only crumb of comfort that I can take from this, apart from the fact that in this case the perpetrators were caught, but the only crumb of comfort that I can take is that there were occasions where the referee had been bribed to uh, assure a, a certain result and he wasn't able to do so. Even with the referee pulling in, one, in, in a particular direction, um, the, the, the undesired team from the point of view of the criminals ended up winning, which I suppose is, is a tribute to the enduring unpredictability of football. What, how has the scam actually worked? What has been uncovered about the gambling rings involved? There are plenty of weak links in football. Now, football is an industry that uh, generates huge amounts of money. I have absolutely nothing against the performers who put on the show, who sacrificed their lives for this. I have nothing against them being being well rewarded for, for their excellence and their sacrifices. But there's no doubt that the existence of so much money in the game does create risks. Now, you can see various vulnerable points where the criminals can get at people. One, we, we just mentioned referees. Referees tend to work on their own. It's a profession um, that ends relatively early. You, you, you can't be a top-class referee at the age of 50 anymore. Um, so as, the, as the, 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 the clock ticks and these referees approach the end of their careers, there are clearly temptations there. Another is uh, former players. Former players who um, might uh, in, in the past have commanded huge salaries, now that income has dried up, they're looking to retain their, their, their standard of living. They, these former players, they might be now working as coaches, which is a very, very precarious profession, or they might simply have contacts in the game that, uh, that can facilitate a kind of, of arrangement that, that could lead to, to a fixed result. And by and large, it seems that the, the more sensible bet from the point of view of the criminals, is when you've got a strong side against the weak side, is don't try and fix it so the weak side wins. That, that can attract too much attention and, and that can just frankly be too difficult. The easier fix is to fix 
the weaker side to lose by an even bigger margin than would have been the case under normal circumstances. So that weaker side, that might have players in there who have never earned great sums of money. They're now coming towards the end of their career. It seems that the key factor in the kind of get-ability of the players is the age. Once that player reaches 28 and beyond, he's looking towards the end of his career. He's thinking, how am I going to provide for, for, for my family? He can be got at. So these would seem to be the, the, the weak links in the, in, in the chain. And FIFA are talking, and the world governing body of football, they're talking about a massive program of player education to try and combat this. This strikes me a little bit as, pub, as more public relations than anything else because it, 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 I, I don't think uh, merely through education you're going to remove the, the temptation for a player in his late 20s or, only thir- or early 30s playing for a comparatively weak club. The, 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 the temptation that, that, that he receives to, to help bring about a certain result and earn much, much more money than he would do normally. So uh, this has to be placed in the context of economic insecurity in the game and also outside the game. What is a player of 30? What's he going to do um, uh, once his playing days are over, especially in an economic context, um, particularly in Europe these days, of widespread unemployment? That's the BBC's Tim Vickery talking to Catherine Ryan. Financial constraints a year after the Olympics has forced Bike New Zealand to trim its squad to just five riders for next month's World Track Championships in Belarus. The men's sprint team of Ethan Mitchell, Sam Webster and Eddie Dawkins, Olympic bronze medalist in the Kieran, Simon van Velthoven and endurance rider Aaron Gate will all take part in Minsk. New Zealand had 15 track cyclists at last year's London Olympics, but high performance manager Mark Elliott told Barry Guy a lack of money's forced them to cut their competition programme this year. Obviously, um, you know, post-Olympic year, you, uh, you know, as a, as a sporting uh, body, you need to look at um, where your priorities lie for the next four years, knowing that um, Rio is that um, is that target. Um, we've uh, clearly got a world-class sprint team at the moment, um, but we've also clearly got some you know challenges as far as the size of the program, um, based on you know the finances it costs to to run a program over a four-year cycle, and we would like to see ourselves um, invest. I guess um, the money when it really counts, and that's in the final three years, not the first three years. So, um, you know, what we're looking at here is the, the sprinters, as we uh, know they can put themselves on the on the world podium, um, go over that world champs, and with our other programs, uh, men's endurance, women's endurance, going through a building phase, and that, that investment sort of sits next year, or sorry, this year, I said 2013, um, New Zealand winter spending time in Europe really, um, you know, laying the foundations for the future years. So with the men's sprint team, it was really a matter of uh, having to choose them because of the form they were in? Um, yeah, it is. I mean, they've, uh, they just keep stepping up every year. And I think uh, Mexico World Cup uh, a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago, you know, we saw them uh, you know, win, the, win the team sprint title. Um, you know, we just know that they're in great form. Nationals um, you know, that we've just completed has shown that they're all in very good form and and they're all fighting for spots, and I guess that's the um, you know that's the strength of the program is that there's um, five guys fighting for three to four spots every time, and and it's uh, creating great in-house competition. A year after, well, six months after a bronze medal, uh, no men's pursuit team. Why is that? Yeah, that's um, that's a big call. I mean, this is the the first time in a number of years that New Zealand has not sent a pursuit team to the World Champs, and um, it's not a decision taken lightly. But you know. As, as I mentioned, it's about what's best for the program long term. We've got an extremely talented young group of guys uh, coming forward, and, and we'd rather see that money invested in them 
uh, you know, developing their skill sets, their their technical abilities over in Europe this year. We've got ourselves a um, a new base in in Oudenard, which is um, just near Ghent in Belgium, and that gives us access, um, you know, only 20 minutes away to the Ghent Velodrome, and and that's where our priority lies, making sure that we um, get those guys. Uh, both physiologically and, and tactically and, and technically delivering to a world-class level in, in Belgium this year, and we'll get more bang for our buck doing that than just one world's campaign. So, I mean, are they riding in pro teams and that sort of thing? No, they're riding for us. We have contracted them all in to ride and perform, um, you know, with a specific target of mine of, of, of winning medals at uh, Rio 2016. So uh, for us, we're just um, biking Zetas, um pretty much running a pro-team approach where we're contracting riders in who have the, uh, the visions and the values that we're looking forward to um, delivering Rio. Uh, if, if you're employing them anyway, uh, why not send them to the World Championships? Because uh, it comes down to, to dollars, and really we make sure that, um, you know, as mentioned, uh, we'd rather see that money invested um, at the back end in those final three years, and we'd rather see that money invested this year in a good four to six months of exposure overseas as opposed to um, one campaign in uh, a very, place to, very expensive place to access in, uh, in Belarusia. Uh, cycling Bike NZ, uh, from memory, has done OK when it's come to high-performance funding, but you're obviously still finding it uh, very tight the year after an Olympics? Sure, sure are, and, and that's um, that's a combination of the size of the program. Um, you know, when we started uh, post Beijing, we pretty much had a men's pursuit team and Ali Shanks, and now we have um, you know a world class sprint team. We have uh, world class um, our women's sprinters coming through. We have um, you know a, a world class pursuit program that's kept on delivering. The BMX program has um, shown great potential as well. Um, you know, the, the program's just grown bigger, and, and there's a point where you just have to. Um, Recognise you can't support everything, so you have to be very defined about your product and and what your return is. Um, the the other challenge for us is that our international body is putting a, a massive uh, cost on us as far as qualification for World Cups and World Championships. So we need to make sure that we're uh, future proofing our our ability to deliver World Championship performances in in the final three years leading to to Rio. I, I'm sure you didn't enter this decision lightly, but was part of the debate what effect this may have on your pursuiters if you didn't go to the World Championships? Oh, it certainly hasn't been the decision taken lightly, but um, the same side, we've created an incredible opportunity for um, a number of young guys who we will um, you know, select and, and fine-tune down over the next couple of weeks, um, an opportunity to um, get an incredible amount of exposure in, in international racing and uh you know, one world championships when um, you know they can you know train themselves this year to uh, put themselves on the podium for 2014 world championships. I think it's a, a good uh, good solution, and um, yeah, it would be ideal that we'd be able to take a team right through to the world champs. But it's not the case. That's not what we've decided to invest in, and uh, I think um, all the riders can see where the, the value in this lies. So, do they have uh, do the you know, endurance riders have much on this year, or really it is just a, a training type year? I don't say just, you know, it's a it's a it's a development year. No, we've um, we've established some very strong relationships with um, racing organisers in Europe. You know, we've been in um, Belgium now for two years. We, we are moving the base to a, a more um, you know trainer training friendly um, uh, location in Belgium, um, the racing schedule we have this year is, um, you know, is, is as top level as some of the pro continental teams that you see in Europe. So we've got a very, very good racing program. 
but alongside that we have a very good um, you know, technical track program plan. So a uh, great opportunity for any of them and um, you know, I think uh, you know, if I was any young rider coming through and, and wanting to see a pathway to the Olympics and then onto the pro scene, this is a very, very exciting uh, pathway to take. Uh, so is this just a 2013 thing? Well, would you hope to have more riders competing at the highest level next year or, or whatever leading up to Rio? Yeah, it, um, next year, um, you know, the, the next year, Glasgow uh, Commonwealth Games uh, 2014, um, Belgium becomes a very, very solid base for us. So it's, it's not just a, a one-year thing. We're certainly using this year to, to develop that tactical and technical awareness of our pursuit programs. But yeah, next year it will be a, a great base for us uh, for Commonwealth Games and, and also you know, fine-tune that development. We have the men's pursuit uh, at the Commonwealth Games, so um, you know, it becomes a very, very short-term target for us and, and really starts bedding down. And, and we're seeing that from the likes of Aaron Gate, who, who just snuck into our team at the Commonwealth Games in Delhi. And, and then now he's a... Um, you know, a very, very um, you know, strong part of that uh, that bronze medal performance in London. So, you know, we see no different next year. That's Bike New Zealand High Performance Manager Mark Elliott talking to Barry Guy. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. The Breakers are on a 10-game winning streak, a record for the club, and while the Australian National Basketball League playoffs are beckoning, they're still keen to build on their winning run. The two-time ANBL champions are chasing a hat-trick of titles and currently lead this season's competition ahead of arch-rivals Perth. This weekend, the Breakers play Sydney, with Sydney currently in third spot, but in a three-way tussle with Wollongong and Melbourne for the last two playoff places. However, Breakers centre Will Hudson, who arrived from the now-defunct Gold Coast Blaze and played for Oakland University in the NCAA, told Richard Wayne they take little notice of where their opposition sit in the competition table. No, not really. I mean, we're so focused on what we're doing in, in New Zealand basketball that, you know, that doesn't even come across your mind when, when you're playing in the season. You know, you just you just focus on you and on how you can improve. Given the, the streak that the breakers are on at the moment and how you seem to be winning your matches quite convincingly, is it hard to keep going and not let complacency sort of slip in there? No, it's really not because you got two things. The coaches keep you on it you know with, with practice and you got veterans that have been around the game you know like CJ Dillon you know even Mika you know those guys who you know if they see something in practice like we're slacking or something like that they make sure that you know that you're messing up so uh, I think right there you know helps our, our focus you know going into these games you know and just continuing you know that focus of you know taking it a day at a time. In, in your own sort of form this season, how do you think um, you've gone um, and sort of progressed through the, through the weeks? Oh man I, I mean it's it's just been a flat out grind, uh, you know. Just learning how I can help this team out, you know. Learning how my role for this team, you know, how I can improve, you know, day by day and contribute to the team. You know, I mean, it's been a grind, and you know that's all I'm focused on is just take it. A day at a time, like like what our main focus is. So when you say it's a grind, I mean that makes it sound like really hard, tough work and so on. Has it been enjoyable? This week? Oh no, yeah. Don't get me wrong. Like it, it's been enjoyable. You know, from the on the court and off the court stuff. You know, I love New Zealand, but I, I mean, just you know, you have your highs, you have your lows. 
you have your highs and you have more lows. So, I mean, as a professional player, like, I'm still learning. Uh, this is my second year playing professional. I'm still learning to, to try to find that middle ground, like, not get too high or not get too low. Just, you know, just stay middle middle uh, middle ground and just, just keep grinding through it. So, I mean, that's all I'm trying to do. I know you're sort of recruited not really as direct replacement for Gary Wilkinson, but obviously you're, you're the big that came in. Um, how do you think you've sort of slotted in and, and made your own place in the team? Oh, man, I'm not – I mean, we're two different players. So, you know, he had his success, and I'm trying to have my success. So, I mean, it's, it's just it's just coming in, you know, playing my style of basketball that got me here in the first place, you know, because otherwise I wouldn't be here, you know, playing for them. So um, I'm thankful for the, the opportunity to come out here and play for the team. And, uh, you know, I think that – that mentality right there, you know, that just keeps me going. You know, people are going to say, try to compare me to, to Gary or, or, you know, say this or say that, but I'm not even focused on it. You know, I'm just I'm just trying to to help this team out and get wins on the board. How do you find the setup? I think you were college ball before you went to Gold Coast and then here, yep. is that right? Yep. How do you find the setup, the team, the club, compared to your other experiences? How does the breakers set up, I guess, compared to the other setups you've been in? Well, college basketball is completely different. To, to the professional ranks, but you know, comparing the Gold Coast team my first year to to here, I mean, you know, it's. I mean, I had, a, I can't, like, I got nothing but good things to say about you know that um, that team, you know, the owners, you know, the community and all that. But I mean, they'll represent New Zealand as a whole. I mean, that just says it all. I mean, I'll be able to look look you know 10, 15 years down the line and just be like you know. I've represented the whole country in New Zealand for basketball, so I, I think that that's pretty special, you know. And the team, you know, the guys, you got the veterans, you know, the, the owners are real, real down to earth. You know, they bring a family environment, and you know, this is like a this team, you know, and and this basketball club is is like the closest thing that I've had to college basketball, you know. Finally, uh, for me, um, contractually, uh, I'm not sure. Have you one year or two years? Uh, it's it's a one year contract. Yep. So, but I mean couple more months I mean we won't be talking about that till months down the line you know so you gotta stay focused on on the goals yep and if you take the championship home that you surely they'd be looking to rebook you I mean I, that's what I'm trying to do is just uh, get that championship you know bring the championship ring home home back to Wisconsin show it off to my mom my family so that's that's what I'm trying to do but you know that's down the, that's down the line you know we just got to stay focused and take it a day at a time you know, just just stay hungry. And long term, do you think you can see your future in New Zealand and maybe even pushing for the national team? Oh uh, man, I don't know. I don't, that's a little too long down the line. <laughs> just take it a day at a time. That's Breakers centre Will Hudson talking to Richard Wayne. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you wish to contact us, you can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.